Hello and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia, the treasurer for the committee, and today I'm delighted to be introducing the wonderful Mike White speaking about his book, How to Walk a Dog. Mike discusses his delightful, funny and moving book, How to Walk a Dog. He talks about his dog Cooper, the remarkable people and dogs he's met while walking him, and life at Wellington Dog Park. The conversation was recorded at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival, an annual weekend of wonderful writers and curious audiences. The festival is aimed at anyone who loves great writers and writing. If you haven't read the book before the session, you'll definitely want to afterwards. For now, please enjoy Mike White speaking to Tessa Nicholson. There'll be time for questions at the end of the session with Mike and copy of the book on How to Walk a Dog is available in the foyer and Mike will be available at the end to sign it. I hope all of you have at least partaken of a glass of Lawson's Dry Hill Wines and that you're enjoying it. I'd like to thank them very much because they are the sponsor of this session. So, kia ora Mike and welcome home. Oh, it does feel like that, Tess. I love coming back every year to the, to the book fest. It's a real treat because I grew up in Marlborough and, um, and then, you know, went, like everyone, they go away from their hometown at 17 saying, oh, never going back there again. And of course, you know, about 10 years later, I ended up back here working at the Marlborough Express and loved it and spent quite a few years here, but it's always home, still feels like home. The really interesting thing is here, he was my boss for a number of years, so this is really nice for me to be sitting on this side, as Mike just said. Uh, Tess, you are the best reporter. Oh. I, like think, I think it's more of a partnership, you know. <laughs> That's not what you used to say. Um, but before we actually get started, I just thought I'd like to do, get a show of hands. So how many of you in the audience currently own or have owned a dog? Could you put your hand up? Oh, actually, it would be much easier if I said how many of you in the audience don't currently own a dog or have How many cat people are there in the audience? Yeah, okay. There's two people up there, though, that have never owned or, you know, once you read this book, you'll be at the SBCA or on Trade Me and you will be having a dog very, very shortly. I probably kind of rephrased that wrongly, didn't I? Because I sort of said, how many of you have or do own a dog? But... Do we own dogs or do dogs own us? Oh, well, I'll speak for myself. You know, all the theories in the world, all the training, I've been through three dogs sort of where I've been theoretically in charge of them. But, you know, you start off with great intentions and, boy, they get eroded and whittled away pretty quickly. And uh, maybe I'm just useless at training dogs, but the dogs always end up calling the shots pretty much. We used to have in our house, we've got a little house in Wellington, and we set very firm rules with our dog, the the dog that's in this book, Cooper, um, our current dog. Very firm rules. He was only allowed in the front of the house, and there was this dividing line, and there was this kind of um, draft strip there, and he wasn't allowed to go past that. So what happens, of course, starts with the front two paws going over. And then the back ones are kind of right up here, and he's stretching in. And I went away for a few months to England, and when I came back, the dog was in the bedroom. He's in the <laughs> well, I'm actually quite surprised, because if somebody had um, set us down, say, 10 years ago, you and I, and said, one of you in a decade is going to write a book about dogs. The fact that I've had seven guide pups to train and a police puppy and I've had dogs all my life, I think everybody would have said, 
Uh, no, Tess, it'll be you, not Mike. I think you, the book's waiting to be written, Tess, honestly. <laughs> you know, you, you should. What's not to love about dogs? What's not to love about guide dogs, training guide dogs? What you've done is amazing. Yeah, yeah and, and I, I sort of agree with that, with that the dogs take over. I mean, Ross was never a dog person, ever. Not an animal person, and you know, we've had I think 15 puppies in the last decade and a half. So. It's amazing how dogs do that. And there's two people in the audience here my partner's parents who have never had dogs and really no experience with them. And our dog has completely won them over as well. And that's where our dog goes to stay most of the time, you know. So it a good dog, oh boy, you've got to be hard of stone not yeah. to love a good dog. So. It's like um, the, the fact that they actually worm their way into your heart, and not just from puppies, but they they give so much, and they're like, cats do this as well, they always find the person in the room that doesn't like cats, and they tend yeah. to climb on your lap and you know, nor but dogs do the same thing, don't they? They can sort of sort out, eh, you're not too sure about me, I'm going to prove myself. Yeah. Mind you, dogs gravitate to the person that's most likely to drop crumbs or, or a bit of sausage off the barbecue, aren't they? You know, they're pretty shrewd like that too. Cats are scheming, but dogs are just, you know, they, they just know where, who's the most likely soft touch with the food, I reckon. But, yeah, look, I, I don't know. I did have a, a cat when I was really I was young. Mm. I had um, my sisters. I've got three sisters, and uh, they, would give, they had a dog, and... and Supposedly, somehow the dog was meant to get sheared around him, and then the youngest boy in the family, he got given a cat, you know, as kind of a sop, and uh, the cat was okay, but, you know, dogs, as soon as I got my first dog, I, you know, it was pretty clear which side of the fence I was on. Yeah, you don't talk that kindly of Josie the cat. Did you Josie think you got the, the short no, end of the stick? No, no, well, I don't know, Josie was fine. I just, I just... Maybe it was an age thing, I just, yeah. But dogs, I just had an immediate connection. And the first dog that I had that I really, uh, that was what I'd say my dog, I was um, living here in Blenheim. At that stage, there was just my mum and myself, and we, our other dog had just died, and suddenly the house was really empty. And so we went and got this dog. There was a dog being given away up in Mowat Street in Springlands. And, you know, I just, as a... 14, 15 year old boy, I felt hard for that dog. And yeah, great dog, Jip. And uh, yeah. But you'd, you'd lost nice. your dad shortly before that yeah. as well, so that's yep. why the house was so silent. Yeah. Did, so, was so it a replacement, uh, did, you know, something else to love? I don't know. You know, some smart psychoanalyst or psychologist had probably come up with some theory, but it was. Our family had gone from essentially five. Um, my father died in the, this summer, my father died. My sister, next sister up, left for university. Um, the dog died, and suddenly there's just two of us there. And so, yeah, of course the dog was filling a gap in the house, but also a gap in my life. But, yeah, fantastic. What a great thing to have a dog as a boy growing up. Love it. Yeah. Mm. Now, this was Cass? Uh, that was Jip. Jip. That Jip. was Jip. Now, and you took Jip off to, to training, didn't oh, you? Yeah. Uh, so oh, um, down the table tell me about this, Mike. Oh, so this is the, this is the, the dog training, your canine obedience club. Some of you have gone through this process, and some of you have probably come out with gold medals. Fantastic, good on you. Uh, but then th this was in the days where it, they used to have it down the Taylor Riverbank there, and uh, you oh, maybe half a dozen lessons or something like that, and then you had your grading the final day, and at 
the, the grading, the top dog got a, a 20 kilogram bag of tucks. Now in those days, the tux factory is not here anymore, no, is no. it? So there used to be a tux factory in town where as a boy I worked on packing bloody dog biscuits. And, and so I knew the value of a 20 kilogram bag of tucks and I thought, we're gonna win this because Jip was really smart. And it comes, he was top of the class, comes to the graduation day and there's that exercise where you all line up with your dogs and dog beside you, and then you, one by one, you walk out 10, 15 paces, the dog stays, you turn around and you call the dog to you, and that's to show you how obedient they are. And Jip had done this tons of times. We practiced this till we, you know. You we were determined were, to win, we, weren't you? We were, that, you know, <laughs> bag of tucks, big deal. So, and, and so I walk out 15 paces, turn around, call Jip. Jip looks at me, looks down the line to where this bitch was that was on heat. No kidding. And he does this, you know, two steps out, and then this arc around to where the bitch was. And this 15-year-old boy's heart that, that thought that I was going to come away as a champion saw it disappearing as my dog, you know, chose hormones over his owner. And I drove home that day a very, uh, or yeah, very sad boy actually. But uh, and and Jip was in the dog box literally. Yeah. Can I tell you a story though? When we first got married, we got a German Shepherd, and you know German Shepherds are very intelligent dogs. And I did that training, and we went for four or five weeks. And then the, the lady was training. Who you know said right next week, next Sunday, or next whatever it is, is graduation day. And I went, I didn't know about this. And she said, No, we'd prefer you didn't bring your dog. And it was the first German Shepherd to ever fail an obedience class. I can remember going round to my sister-in-law's and bursting into tears. It was just the most horrific thing. I was such a failure. So oh, I can really relate to yeah, that. Oh, yeah. There wasn't even tux dog biscuits on. No, yeah, but, but, but I mean, what, what did your dog do wrong? What, what oh, was... she was very social. Okay. She was a bit like me. Yeah, you know? yeah. She kind of liked the other dogs more than she liked listening to my voice. She'd last, had enough of me. The last time I went and did dog training, some of the... Some of the, this is in Wellington, some of the dogs were absolute lethal. You know, you let them off the leash, they would have chewed a baby. They, they were terrible things, but they just made all the excuses in the world to pass them. I was kind of amazed. Standards have slipped terribly since the day <laughs> Did you take Cooper to obedience we classes? We did, we did. And he was pretty good, but there was no bag of tucks at the end of it. And he was, yeah, he was all right. So he was well ahead of some of the other numpties there. Boy, there were some shockers, as I say, you know, that had no idea of what sit or come meant. But, you know, in the end, the, the, the trainers, the the obedience people are saying okay if you stand okay let him come to me and that was enough you know two paces oh yes he's passed good on you yeah. i'm pleased you don't have children yeah. <laughs> you, would, you would hate yeah. the teaching yeah. system so how to walk a dog it's a disparate group of people yeah in, in, a, in a dog park how yeah. did you find this particular dog park? look uh, absolute random chance so the, we got um that's my dog Cooper. Um, he's about tw he's coming up twelve now. So we got him as he was about four months old as a pup, and this is the first time I've, I've had a dog in a city, and a bit different to you know in Marlborough having a dog. And so there was this dog park. I looked on the map, council map, where the dog parks, and there was a dog park in Brooklyn. I don't know if people know where that is. It's sort of just south of the city. It overlooks the harbour. It's lovely, and so. It just worked out with our routine. My partner was working downtown. I would drive there to the dog park in the morning. Nicky, my partner, would get out, walk down to work, and I'd walk the dog at the dog park. 
And it just so happens that my routine, my daily schedule, coincided with a whole lot of other people that had the same kind of schedule. And it just so happened that they were really cool people. They were really <laughs> wonderful. And this little community, as happens around the country in hundreds of dog parks, happens here in Marlborough, I'm sure, you just meet people and you've got that one thing in common, you own a dog, so that's a great icebreaker, isn't it, for a start? And you know that you've got that similar outlook in some things. And so, yeah, I, I met some amazing people and that little community formed and has, has stayed there for the last 10 years plus, yeah. One of the things that um, people, well, you've actually quoted this in the book, one of the things people might not appreciate about dog parks is how much those who go there talk. You know, firstly about their dogs and their breeds, their names, and then you state, finally, or then, you know, finally you get around to asking, oh, by the way, what's your name? Yep. Yeah, it's yep. like, it's all the dog detail before you actually get yep. to know well, the human. That's right, and it's a stupid little protocol, well, it's not even a protocol, it's just the way it happens, you know. You meet a stranger and you've got something in common, so the icebreaker is, oh, what's your dog's name? Oh, what kind of breed is it? Oh, how old are they? Yeah, oh. Sorry, on mic, you know, it's that kind of thing. And I always think, next time I do this, I'm going to introduce myself first and then the dog, and it never happens. You're always kind of dog first. Yeah, yeah. because you're looking at the dog before you're looking yeah, at the owner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the dog's probably jumped up on you with muddy paws and things. So, so for 10 years you've used this this park, or well, more than 10 years actually now, coming up, it's almost 12. So when did you realise that there was more on the agenda or more available to you than just a park where you could walk Cooper? As in the, the friendship the friendships, yeah. Reasonably soon, actually, um, there was a, in that first year, um, there was a store group of about half a dozen of us who would be there pretty much every morning. You get close. I mean, that's, a lot of you will know what this is like. You take your dog there to exercise. The dogs, are, all they want is to roar around, sniff each other's bums, you know, pee in the bushes. And so you're left standing there largely unoccupied, apart from throwing the old stick. So you, you know, you're not going to stand there in silence, so you talk and you meet these people every day and you get to know them pretty well. You know, you see them a lot more than often your family members and you, eventually you learn a lot about their lives. You become, you know, intimate details about what's going on. And that happened with this group of people that um, I, I found myself every morning with at the, at the dog park. And luckily, as I say, they were fantastic people with hugely interesting lives and, uh, and backgrounds and very quickly became really good friends. Yeah. Have you ever been in a situation before like that where you've no. bonded with people? You know, one or two other people through dogs in the past, but nothing like this at all. It was a, it was a revelation to me that these dog parks, and in Wellington's case, urban dog parks, could be such little uh, focal points where little communities could arise. But I know that it happens all around the country. Oh, so you don't think that yours is an unusual situation? No, I, I, I don't. Um, I think uh, I've been to um, other places where I've met and heard about uh, uh, groups of people who gather at certain times of the day. So I honestly, no, I think it's replicated around the country. I don't think there's anything special, except I think the people at our dog park are pretty special. So, yeah. so you 
do you know people, do you ever go at any other time of the day and meet other yeah. people or is it always morning and the, you know, the group of... Like, do you go at other times of the day, never say hello to them, no. Different crowd, oh. uh, shopping. Oh, no, you snob. I mean, no, no, you, you, it, it's, it's funny because at other times when I go there, there's not a group of people standing around. I think this is a popular time of the day. I go there sort of half past eight, so... Um, people have probably got their kids off to school or they've just, you know, the retired ones have just woken up and, and had their first cup of tea and they've wandered up the hill. It, it just seems to be a popular time uh, of the day. Yeah. As I say, it's a disparate group of people. You've all, they, they come from all walks of life. I mean, people, you know, there's Barbara, Jeremy, Jenny, Matthew, just to name, name a few of them. Um, you, you've become such a community in the sense that you even celebrate your birthdays yeah, and, yeah. and events with like morning teas at the dog park. We do. Uh, you're probably going to think I'm really sad. <laughs> I say, you know, this guy, all this guy's got to do is, is the only bit of his life is at the dog park. No, um, I don't know. It's just uh, so. What do you do? You know, after the first year of, of meeting these people, getting to know them really well, we thought, oh, you know, Christmas is coming up. Let's have just a sheared breakfast at the dog park, and it's evolved every year. The dog's breakfast is, is what we have <laughs> as a Christmas kind of celebration for people, and yeah, it's grown every year, quite a reasonable gathering. And then people's birthdays, we think, oh, look, let's, let's, let's just um, bring some coffee and cakes and things to the dog park. And the coffee and cakes have got the scale of the, of, the, of, the, of the catering has got increasingly better. And so what we've got is this, there's a community garden just by the dog park at one end of the dog park and I don't know, someone had one of those fold up tables in the, the community garden and they were throwing it out and I thought, geez, that's really good, that could be useful. So we, I pinched that from the rubbish pile, I hide it away in the bushes there and every time we have a, a community, a, a dog park breakfast, we would pull it out, put all the food there because it's a great height, it's up above dogs' noses and, uh, and, and then have, have a lovely spread and then I put it back in the bushes afterwards. Is it still there or has it been stolen? Yeah, no, it is still there. Amazingly, it's still there, which probably is, it's not a very flash table, but it does the job, you know. Do you meet outside of the dog park? Yeah, we do sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, it was lovely when COVID happened last March, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, end of March. And so lockdown, can't go to the dog park. And um, so, so we had virtual dog park meetings. We'd have Zoom <laughs> once a week, a bunch of us, half a dozen of us, the hardcore, we'd just we'd get on Zoom. Oh, and there's a dog in the background. <laughs> We're a bunch of softies, I know. But yeah, no, we do. And we, um, we, we catch up sometimes at various functions or, you know, I t it, middle of winter, some mornings to have a dog park breakfast gets a, is now getting a bit of a, you know, a test for some of us. So we think, oh, instead of having a breakfast at the dog park, let's have a wine after work in the nice wine bar in Brooklyn. So we've done that as well. So, Do you allow new entrants? Of course, we're yeah. very open. And I know we, people probably will say, oh, a bunch of snobs, you know, standing around talking to each other. But of course, it's great because, you know, some of the dogs have died that have been in, mm. the, in, the, in the group, and I hate losing contact with those people. But by the same token, that's just what happens. People shift and, and you know, move on 
um, to other dog parks if they go to live somewhere else. And new people come in and fill gaps, so it's great. Yep, it, it's, They're not intimidated by all of this 10 year Probably a relation. little bit at the start, but I go out of my way to be really, you know, to go up to people and ask them what their dog's name is. So, yeah. <laughs> Don't tell me your own name, but I'd love to know yeah, your dog's exactly. name. Yeah. <laughs> How did people like Barbara and Jeremy and, you know, and um, Jenny and Matthew? I mean, did you talk to them about writing this book? Did you discuss it with them? At a late, at a later stage. So what happened with this is I started going to the dog park and all these amazing people and all these amazing stories and I just started making notes. And at that stage I was working for North and South magazine and at, after about six months of owning the dog, I said to me, look, I'd like to write a feature about um, you know, uh, the dog park and some of the fun things that gone there. She said, great. So I did that. And I just kept collecting stories. I'd go home from the dog park and I'd just take a note of these bizarre and wonderful and funny things that had happened. And then I thought, there's probably a decent book in this. So after a year, I pitched this book. I hope there's... No, no yeah, oh, yeah, I will tell the story. I, so I... There, some of you will know there's a series that our press puts out called How To. It's like how to um, uh, uh, look at a painting, how to um, write a hit song. It's a, it, what they call the Ginger series uh, that they put out. And I thought, oh, this would be perfect for this, um, how to walk a dog. And so I wrote this proposal and sent in this story that I'd done for North and South to, the, to this um, publisher in Wellington, our press. And, um, and I got a letter back saying, thank you for your letter. But I think everyone knows how to walk a dog. <laughs> I thought, you're missing the point. <laughs> so in the end, I thought, oh, bugger it, I'll carry on. And then, ah, oh, gee, about eight years went by, and I collected a whole lot of notes, and I thought, crikey, Cooper's getting on a bit. Um, if I'm going to do this book, I'd better write it. Uh, and so I did some sample chapters, um, sent it to another publisher who wanted it, and... Uh, at that stage, when the publisher had said, yep, we're really keen, then I talked to the, the, the main people at the dog park, let them know, and I asked, there was some, there's some quite personal things mm. in this book, um, and I absolutely um, talked to them about that and showed them the people the copy and, the, and those very sensitive bits to, to make sure that they were comfortable with it. What was their reaction when you said, I'm going to write a book? I've written this book and it's, been, it's going to be published. Oh, probably well-mannered trepidation. They probably, they, they, they said, oh, okay, great. Um, thinking, geez, what have I done over the last <laughs> 10 years that he's going to put in the book? But, um, but yeah, I, no, everyone's really supportive and everyone's loved it and I've still got all my friends at the dog park. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it's a hell of a change from your first book. Who's killed Scott Guy? Oh. Um, you know that was a case that, as you said, was you know that captured a nation in the book, and you're also a hell of a difference from your long form writing that you've written about some very serious issues. So, can we take a look at that book if we can? When did you become involved in that case against you know the the Crown versus you and McDonald for killing Scott Guy? Yeah, so this is a case. Uh, most of you will remember this. This is um, Scott Guy, Fielding Farmer, who was killed in. 2010, uh, shot at the entrance to his his home. Um, he's a dairy farmer, and his 
killing was uh, they they didn't couldn't find the the culprit for a good six months, uh, and then lo and behold, the man they arrested was his brother-in-law who lived um, a couple of kilometres down the road, Ewan McDonald, um, and so this story had already by this stage gripped the nation. Everyone was fascinated by it. Um, and that was just heightened when it's someone in the family is arrested for the murder. At that stage, someone said, and, and the, the lawyer who, um, so the guy, Ewan McDonald, who's accused of murder, taken into the cells through a, a weird uh, situation. Ewan McDonald's brother is a top detective in Wellington. Okay, very awkward situation. So Ewan McDonald's brother finds out his, his, his brother has been uh, accused of murder, thinks, shit, who have I been in court with? What lawyers have I seen in court who are really good? I've seen a guy called Greg King, who's one of the, was one of the great, greatest lawyers, rings up Greg King first thing in the morning and says, my brother's been accused of murder, can you represent him? Greg's driving somewhere saying, look, I'm just too busy, I can't do it, mate. And then five minutes later thinks, yeah, I've got to do this, rings the detective back and says, yeah, I'll do it. Turns his car around and drives up to Palmerston North. So I knew Greg King, the lawyer I'd done a profile when he was a young lawyer, and um, someone said to me, you should do this case. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'll look at it. Because so much media had been already written about the Scott guy's murder. And I thought, what, is there, what else is there to write? But then I thought, look, I know the, the lawyer, and I said to him, can I spend a year with you covering the defence case of what seems like an unwinnable case? Everyone assumed Ewan McDonald was automatically guilty. And luckily, the family of Ewan McDonald agreed to um, spend time with me and speak with me in the run-up to that trial. And so that's how I came to be involved with it, then I covered the case, which was the trial, which was about a five-week trial in Wellington, and um, yeah. Were you still working for North and South at that time? So you, yeah, were, I was. you were still yeah. having to do the other, the other work, producing your other long Yeah, form, but you know. I was writing for North and South about this case. I wrote yeah. a long feature about the case after the trial concluded, and, um, and then a publisher approached us and said... Well, Greg King actually suggested you should write a book, I think. Yeah, yeah. Greg always did, and, and yeah, um, it's one of... What, yeah, it's re yeah, it's really sad that um, people know that Greg King um, committed suicide not long afterwards, and it's real sadness that Greg never got to see the book. He got to see the story, but never the book. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, Mike. Um, did the publishers approach you, or did yep. you go to Alan and I? No, oh, <laughs> a publisher, another publisher approached us. Um, that unfortunately fell over, and then uh, Alan and Unwin came in and picked it up. And uh, yeah, and it was, but a lot of it was already written by the time that Alan Nunn came along. So yeah, but it's still it's a lot of work. Writing a book's quite hard, you know. Even <laughs> things, it's, oh, it's just writing, isn't it? It's really a lot of hard work. And my poor partner, you know, I was using up all our weekends. At, uh, actually, I think in in the. Um, in the dedication of that book, I say that I owe her a summer, summer. Because, because, <laughs> I, because it was, you know. And when you're writing about something grim like a murder case, it's not a lot of fun, you know. Oh, tell me, what, what are you writing about in this chapter, dear? Yeah, oh, more murder, great, yeah. Your strength has always been long-form writing. You've won just about every single award in New Zealand for, for that. But 
How different was processing a book, writing a book? You know, you said it was incredibly difficult. But did it require a different sort of mindset for you from what other types of writing you'd done? No, it's, I, I, I don't think so. It's, it's just on a bigger scale. It's just, um, it's this a long, long form writing, like I, now I work for stuff and I, I do the same things as I, as I did at North and South, writing long stories. It's the same kind of storytelling. It's the same trying to somehow hook your audience, your reader in, uh, at the start and keep them reading right to the end of a long story when they've got other things to do and other things in their lives and other you know things on telly and whatever. So a book's a bit like that, but just on a longer scale. Um, it's an expanded version of it, but you have to deal with it in chapters. In the same way that when you write a long story, you often deal with it sort of in chapters. It's exactly the same for a book, but they are really chapters. Uh, you, you're looking at a different aspect, but each chapter has to be a really grunty and, and it's something that hooks people in and, and interests them and carries them through. What, what sort of word count would you be talking in a long-form story? Uh, for the paper? Yeah, now for the magazine, yeah, um, for North and North South. North and South uh, probably doesn't mean anything to people, but... Um, North and South story might have averaged four or five thousand words. The longest stories I did were oh, that, four or five thousand words might mean ten pages in a magazine. Um, the longest stories I did were about thirteen thousand words, which are anything up to twenty pages in a magazine. Um, so there's a big difference so when you get into a book that's up to like a hundred thousand. Yeah, I think the Scott Guy book was eighty thousand. Yeah, yeah. 80, uh, ninety thousand in the end. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. but it, it's just you just there's a lot in that case to write about. It wasn't like I was short of material I was trying to pass. Was it hard actually to differentiate what you were going to leave out and what you were going to include? No, it worked out pretty well to the word count actually. Yeah. I just, you know, you can go on forever about these things, but um, yeah, I thought it was, it was about right. Media obsession was with the case, so how did that impact what you were writing and the fact that you were involved with the defence team? Did, did it have an impact? Well, I was probably one of the only people that thought that you and McDonald didn't do it, um, which which made me quite rare. Uh, but I sat through. Well, other than the jury, they didn't think he did it either, or they could have done. Um, I I thought I had a different angle on it. I thought I had a, an objective angle. I didn't go in there to 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 kind of say that you know this guy's innocent. That was never the uh, the intention of the book. I just wanted to provide a different perspective. Um, you know, when cops arrest people, I'm like everyone think, well, they've got a good reason to do that, haven't they? They've done their homework, they've investigated this for months. But there's sometimes, and most of the time, they're right. But sometimes, maybe there's a few questions, and I think we're allowed to ask those questions, and I think that's exactly what journalists should be doing. Mm. It's the great old thing of holding the system to account. Well, I think that's really important, because, you know, come on, we're not going to get it right all the time. Quite a few people that have ended up in prison wrongly, um, and and I think those questions should be allowed to be asked without anyone getting their back up. Did you have to go through a lot of legals before the book was published? Was you know was that a uh, mammoth task? A little bit, yeah, a little bit. It did. Um, some things were taken out, uh, and some things are line calls, and. I'll admit I think I made a mistake in that book about putting one thing in there. I'm not going to 
it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not of great consequence, no. but I named someone who I don't think I should have. I don't think, uh, yeah, mm. I, I, I look back, and in the reprints, I've taken the name out. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's not perfect, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. Can I, with that whole editing process that you just brought up there, some things were taken out and, you know, and things, how difficult is that as a writer? And I mean, you must have had the same with How to Walk a Dog, that the publishers or, you know, the, the editing team says, mm, nah, that's a bit naff, or can you, you know, can you expand on something? Is that difficult for you as a writer? I mean, mm. was there much in this book? The, with the Scott Guy book, there was one suggestion of, of rearranging it, and they were absolutely right. With the dog book, there was an editor who made a lot of picky little comments that I thought, this is just rubbish, and got my back up a bit, but you know, that was just pathetic ego, really, wasn't it? And um, look, when you stand back, most of the time, when you've spent so long writing a book, which can be months or years, you can't see the wood for the trees. No. You need fresh eyes on it, and they're usually right. 95% of the time, they're right. So you just got to swallow it and say, yeah, okay. Did you do many edits on How to Walk a Dog? No, no. It was, um, it was the easiest, nicest thing I've had to write. It must have been cathartic after everything else you've done. Oh, it was a nice break from murder, Tess. Uh, it was, <laughs> you know, and it was just joyful writing. Yeah. What's, you know, writing about dogs and about lovely people. I mean, there's sad bits in it. There's um, mm. tough bits. But by the same token, I was, yeah, it, it, it pretty much sailed through. Um, and it came to the word length that, that, would, uh, that would, had been suggested by the publisher, yeah. Could we just take a break now, maybe do a bit of a reading? From, from the book, and we talked about this earlier, and you can, you can sort of explain. I, it was a reading okay. that I sort of asked okay. quite Oh, quickly, look at this dog. He's got four legs. His name's Hobbs. And this is, um, this is a I knew passage this. I had about, this, plan. this is a passage about Hobbs. Hobbs is um, my dog Cooper's best mate. They met at a dog park, uh, at our dog park, when Cooper knocked over Hobbs's owner. Um, sat her right on her ass, and I had to go up and apologise. But since then, we've become the best of friends. And um, Cooper, our dog, is actually staying with Hobbs right now. These two old boys that are now nearly twelve. I just got a text from um, from Hobbs's one of Hobbs's owners saying that these old boys at quarter to midnight last night, one of them was barking in the lounge with his reaching out for his favourite toy and Cooper was standing beside him with his favourite toy. So, you know, the old boys there is go for a sleepover and they're up at night <laughs> Absolutely shocking. But anyway. So Hobbs um, used to come and stay with us a lot. Uh, I work from home and we live by the sea. We've got a little um, my little office is at the front. I look out to the beach. Got a little deck out the front. The dogs always lie on the front. There's a gate this high over the gate, pavement, road, beach. Okay. And so what happened? Jeez, uh, I've caught myself up in knots here, haven't I? Um, so what happened one day is that Hobbs looked across the road uh, at the at the beach, saw another dog that he knew, someone with a ball thrower. That was like crack to Hobbs, someone with a ball thrower. Hobbs bolted over our gate, and I'm on my phone, and I see this dog's backside disappear over the gate and disappear out onto the road. And, yeah, the worst happened. 
just at that moment, a car came along and hit Hobbs, um, crunched him right here on his front shoulder. While I'm forever thankful that I was spared the sound of the impact, I've never been able to stop recalling that sickening first sight of him sprawled across the road on his side. All I can think of was, oh God, he's not moving. If he's not dead, he will be soon. And I'm going to have to watch him gasp his last few breaths. When I reached Hobbs, he was whimpering with piss coming out of his rear end and blood coming from his mouth, staining the asphalt. The car that had hit him was backing up and people were getting out. The driver and passenger, two guys in their 20s with cropped hair, jogged up and said, oh, sorry, so sorry, man. The dog just raced out in front of me. They, we didn't have a chance to stop. And it's true. Hobbs had cut out from between parked cars and gave them no chance to break in time. It wasn't their fault. But at that moment, I couldn't spend much time reassuring them. Swamped with shock and deserted by the calm decision-making required in such circumstances, I instantly bent down and picked up Hobbs as he tried to rear up and moaned loudly. When the car's passenger offered to help Hobbs, offered to help, Hobbs rounded on him and tried to bite him. As I stood there in the middle of the road with the dying dog in my arms, my mind whirled about what to do. I knew I needed to get him to a vet immediately if he was going to have any chance, but how? I went to put him in our car, but the door was locked, so I asked the other car's passenger to get the keys out of my pocket, but when he did this, he couldn't work out how to unlock the damn door. So I desperately asked him if they could take me to the vet, but they said, oh, sorry, mate, we've got kids, we have to be somewhere. And then an angel arrived. I use that word reluctantly, given I have no belief in fate or the in the supernatural, but there's little other way to describe her and the remarkable timing of her intercession. Her name was Monique, a detail I didn't discover till later as we raced to the vet. All I knew at that instant was, as I stood cradling a fast-fading Hobbs and wondering what to do, a woman appeared over my shoulder. I'm an SPCA nurse. Can I help you? I still had no idea where she was going or what she thought was going on. Whatever her plans were, she abandoned them and became the answer to my panicking quandary. She said she could take us to the vet, so I jumped into the car with her, with Hobbs, Hobbs was breathing rapidly and Monique said he needed pain relief. Which vet do you want to go to, she asked. Island Bay's vet was closest and Monique said she, we could go to the SBCA in Newtown where she worked, which wasn't too much further. But I decided to head to the Central Vet Clinic about six kilometres away at the bottom of Brooklyn Hill because that's where Hobbs went and they called themselves a hospital. Looking back, I wonder why I didn't take up Monique's suggestion to go to the SBCA where they were well set up for emergencies and she could have directed everything but at the time I was just focused on getting Hobbs to his regular vet for some reason. A reasonably non-vital fixation that gives me concern for my decision-making ability should I ever be in, say, a plane crash or a high-rise inferno or a terrorist attack in a shopping mall. Monique had only been living in Wellington for three weeks and had no idea where she was going. I said, just drive, I'll tell you where to go. Shall we go fast, she asked. Yes, I said. So all up Happy Valley in O'Hara Road, we sped past cars and I hoped they understood it was an emergency, wouldn't star five five us. On the way down Brooklyn Hill, we got stuck behind a slow ute and the driver obviously thought we were being bogan wankers, so he braked and we almost rear-ended him, forcing us to pull back and fret. Along the way, I'd managed to pull my, my phone out and ring Jan, one of, Briar's, uh, one of Hobbs's owners, who, was, who had, as it happened, had just sat down to lunch with Briar. I told her briefly what had happened and where we were going. Oh my God, she said, and, and told me she'd be there as soon as she could. At the vet clinic, 
Monique and I swung into the parking space and two nurses inside looked up from reception counter to see Hobbs in my arms and me motioning for them to open the doors. They pointed me down a corridor and into a room and I laid Hobbs on a stainless steel table. Everyone else was calm. I was sick. A vet arrived and started checking Hobbs over and then they shaved a patch of fur off his front leg, put in an intravenous line for pain relief and fluids. The colour around his gums was pallid. As I stood beside the cold steel table, I imagine my face was equally drained of colour. Jan arrived and tearfully crept up the corridor to join us. Is he all right? Hobbs was all right. Hobbs what? survived. To he lost a leg. But, um, yeah, a remarkable, um, remarkable resilience, dogs. Um, and, look, hey, hey, the car hits him here. Six inches this way, it would have got his head, he would have died. Six inches that way, it would have gone through his rib cage and got his, his organs inside and he would have been dead. But he's, for the last 10 years, he's been a tripod, this amazing dog on, with, with the back leg slightly splayed, the front leg out in the middle, and what a dog, cool dog. Yeah, so happy endings. Mm. You've talked earlier about they're not always happy endings, and dogs, I mean, it's one of the great tragedies in life, isn't it, that um, the dogs don't have this huge lifespan. Um, I don't think anybody who's never owned a dog can understand what it is to lose a dog. Would mm. you agree? Yeah, yeah, look, look, um, we don't have children. I don't know what it would be like to lose a, a child. Um, so, but all I know is having dogs and the gap that uh, it leaves, it's, it's vast. And of course, everyone's different. Everyone has a different relationship with their dogs. But, you know, Cooper's, that's when he's less than one. He's nearly 12 now. I know the numbers game. Mm. Um, and... I just dread what's coming ahead, but that's the deal. That's the contract. Whenever you pick up that cute little puppy, you know that some stage in the future that, that there's going to be a day where you're going to have to make a decision or a decision's going to be made for you. So what do you do? Do you save yourself the heartache because you can't face what might happen eventually? I'm not prepared to do that. I, you know, the... the extraordinary joy that a dog brings to your life yeah is always going to have a sad ending but it's going to be brilliant before then i've read and i don't know where i've read this it might have actually been from one of the books that i've read for the book festival but somebody some kid asks about why why do dogs live so short and another person says it's because when we come and to the world, we have to learn to love and live and give faith and, and be faithful, whereas dogs arrive knowing all those things. So we spend half our life learning those, dogs come with those. I thought that was just the most beautiful analogy. Yeah, it is. Um, I'll try and remember that in a few yeah. years' time where I'm facing that inevitable decision. And, and you know, I've seen in the, in the years since I've been going to this dog park, I've seen people having to make those decisions. And I've seen the way that some people react in getting a dog, another dog straight away to fill that gap and other people just saying no and waiting and it can be years and some haven't, you know, oh. haven't yet because it's just, they, they can't quite feel, they never feel it's the right time to replace that dog. One of the loveliest comments which is in the book and it's regarding the passing of a dog, um, it comes from Graham Sidney, the artist, um, which re this really resonated with me. Quote, it's a quieter house, noticeably so, even though Milo scarcely uttered a sound in his mature years. 
but presence has sound, the sounds of company, and you know too well when it's gone. Yes. I just thought that was the best way of it's summing it up. It's a brilliant quote. This, it was just from Graham in an email when his, his, his dog, uh, one of, he had two dogs die in reasonably quick succession. And, um, yeah, uh, the, Sir Graham Sidney got knighted just recently. Mm. Um, talented bugger. God, he can paint and he can write beautifully as yeah. well. But it, that's, that's just an email and I just thought, yeah, that sums things up. Yeah, yeah. it does. Okay. okay, let's get on to more joyful notes. Okay. Do dogs start to look like their owners? Or do owners start to look like their dogs? Yeah. <laughs> One of the great questions of our time, Tess. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I've thought I, about it a lot. <laughs> I, 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 I kind of think, well, if they don't look like them, I reckon they do take on characteristics and personalities of their owners. I don't think it's just coincidence that a lot of dogs and a lot of owners are very similar. I don't know quite about looks, but, well, yeah. What you mean in personalities? You can see, you know, a person who's, like, super, super... Um, like almost ADD kind yeah, of thing. They will get anxious or, you know, they'll get like a dog that. Absolutely. I, yeah, is that I'm nurture or nature? Is it. that the person but passing on their own? I don't know. I, it, maybe it's just me anthropomorphizing a whole lot of, you know, do, normal dog characteristics and reading things into it. I don't know. Um, I kind of look at Cooper and think, yeah, there's a bit of you, a bit <laughs> of me and you, kind of, you know. A lot of bad habits, uh, but um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about looking like. Although you do sometimes mm. meet those ones where where the the owners and the people just uh, sorry, the owners and the dogs just look made for each other, don't they? You know, you just think, yeah. Crikey, I think mean? the funniest thing I've ever seen, I was at the vet centre just um, a couple of years ago, and this guy walked in. It was summer. He'd on stubbies and boots and a wife beat a singlet and it was short, very, very solid, you know, tats all over him. Um, and he walked in and I was bathing the dog and I thought, he's going to come out with a bulldog or a rock wheeler. Or, you know, <laughs> yeah, the, I was assuming that the, he came out with a chihuahua. Yeah. And I just, I'm sorry, but I just lost the plot. I almost actually had to put my head into the, into the bath because it just did not commute with what I I'd know, been thinking. I know. Yeah. yeah. I, one of the favourite photos that I ever taken was uh, down at Wanaka and this guy is really tough hard as guy walking along the waterfront there with these two tiny little things that honestly are marginally bigger than the some of the rats that we catch in the in the bush up the back of our place you know um and and trotting along either side of them and you think oh that's just wonderful <laughs> yeah. that just blows Have all you those taken a yeah, I do. I've got a great photo of him. So, yeah, all the stereotypes go out the window at those days. You've those done times. such a lot with Cooper. I mean, you've all, you tramp with him and you, you yeah. know, lots of things. I was fascinated by the story about going tramping and the Kiwi. Yeah, yeah. Kiwi, Kiwi version train. training. Yes, please yeah. tell us okay, about Okay, so um, certain areas you go into, you have to have a certificate that says your dog's gone through a training course for Kiwi version, which basically means your dog isn't going to chase off after Kiwi. And uh, so how they do this is that you go out to a place and there's this uh, pretty laconic trainer called Jim Pottinger and he straps on an evil device around your dog's neck called a shock collar. And before you all start going, ooh, it's amazing how it works. So so he, he's got a little, he's got a loop and he's got half a dozen 
carcasses or things that look like kiwi carcasses with um, kiwi uh, scent on them. And he's got other ones where kiwis pop up with a, with a tape recorder playing kiwi noises beside him. And so your dog trots off and so Cooper's there happily going through the bush, sees the first kiwi, goes over to it, sniff, sniff, and Jim has got the controller on the shot collar and goes that. And Cooper just went, bang, yelps, leaps backwards. And you think, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> next, uh, next kiwi uh, he comes along to, he edges up and doesn't go right up to it. And Jim just gives him a little tingle, tingle on, the, uh, on the shot collar and Cooper jumps back. The rest of that circuit, every time he came to a kiwi, he did this amazing big D around it, went nowhere near it. And, the, and, you, and you might think, oh, this is a cruel, cruel thing to do. I rationalise this and think, this is two seconds of discomfort with a dog, it's not long lasting. And he is cured for life of wanting to go anywhere near a kiwi. Cooper mm. in his dreams probably thinks that the laser kiwi actually exists. He probably thinks the Kiwis, you know, zap him. Because we go back every year or two, you go back for retraining, and Jim will put the collar on the dog, and he'll lead them around that course, and Cooper will not go anywhere near those Kiwi carcasses, even year, two years. I mean, this is, we've been going now for, you know, the best part of 10 years with him. Won't go anywhere near it. It's imprinted on their brain. But that's given you this beautiful ability to take him into the bush and, yep. and everywhere else, which you and couldn't just, have done if you And just confidence. If yeah. only I could do that with cats. Here's, um, you know, Cooper will not go near any other animal, um, you know, ducks, chooks, things that are much easier to catch. But cats, bring it on. Yeah, he's a shocker. You see, you've passed this on about Josie. He's, 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 he's absorbed your dislike of furry cats. That's a possibility to yep. yes. <laughs> Are there bad dogs, bad breeds, or are they just bad owners? I don't know. I don't know. I, okay. Uh, um, there's heaps of bad owners. Um, what in your, can, I, can you define that? What, what in your mind is a bad owner? Uh, owners that don't look after their dogs. Owners that don't treat dogs as, you know, as just sentient beings. Owners that are cruel to their dogs. Owners mm. that consider dogs as an impediment. People that shouldn't own dogs or that own dogs for the wrong reasons, like because I want to scare people away from coming in, you mm. know. Um, people that don't give a dog a chance to have a, have a decent life. Um, and, and so, of course, yeah, if dogs, dogs are treated badly, they might react badly. Don't get me on to whether pit bull should be allowed or shouldn't be allowed. For every time you say, oh, they're, they're terrible and look what they did, they ripped someone to pieces, which happened, I think, last week, someone got attacked. Um, someone will say, I've got the loveliest pit bull in the world and my kids roll around on the floor with it. Um, I don't know. Put it this way, I wouldn't ever own a pit bull myself. But, um, yeah, I, I think, yeah. My dog's had a really good life, I like to think. Tess's dogs have had amazing lives. Um, not all dogs are that lucky. Mm. Training, how important is that to you in your mind? Yeah, I think it's really important just to, you know, I'm probably the worst example of, the, of, <laughs> of, 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 a, of a great dog trainer. I think it's really important just to get the basics. So what are the basics that you need your dog to do? Well, sit's good, yeah. Um, weight is really good. 
Um, cum is excellent because a dog at a dog park that's having a lot of fun ain't going to come back to you unless you've got some kind of control over it. And I've spent a lot of time catching people's dogs at, <laughs> at dog parks that just don't want to go home. Uh, so I, if you can just get those basic things, um, your, whole, your life's going to be a whole lot easier. And is the whole theory of it, it enforce, reinforces who's in control in this relationship. Well, as I say, that's kind of debatable. Dwindled, dwindled <laughs> and eroded badly in, in our situation. But uh, those basic, I would absolutely, everyone should take their dog to a, a dog obedience class or something like that because I think it, it will just make everyone's life a lot easier and a lot happier. Heal. That's a really good one. I'm really good at that. Yeah, my dog's... I can't even oh. make Ross heal. So, you know, how am I going yeah, to do with exactly. the dog? Yeah, I'm not... Yeah, I know Kip's all right at that. But, yeah, those are just, just those basic things. And it's just establishing that relationship. Yeah. What's the worst experience you've ever had walking, Cooper? <laughs> oh, I don't know, not too many. Um, he's never attacked... Anyone, anything? Uh, no, he's he's been pretty compliant. I mean, the worst, yeah, worst experiences when the courier driver left the gate open when he was a puppy, and he and his mate Hobbs escaped down the road, and I went out on out the front looking for them, and I see them a hundred yards down the road, and it's quite a busy road past our place, and they're youngish dogs. And so I'm left with this decision, what do I do if I run off after them? They'll probably think it's a game and bugger off. Um, so I called them and spent that 10 seconds of them running back with my heart in my mouth, Ooh. thinking, are they going to run out onto the road or are they going to stick along the footpath? But yeah. But no, um, I'll probably think of the really bad ones afterwards. I've just blotted them out of my mind, obviously, at the moment. But no, You had a bad experience, not so much with Cooper, but with, was it Lily? You killed oh, Lily? Oh, I killed Lily. Oh. This I is the responsible almost, dog owner. <laughs> I should all my, yeah, I should read that. But anyway, I'll quickly tell the story. So we're out at, um, I'm walking Hobbs and Cooper out uh, up the Kapiti Coast on a beach there and throwing sticks and I found this really good stick. So it's quite long and it's quite heavy at one end and that way you can get a real heft it into the waves. And so I'm throwing the stick for Cooper and pretty much like that. Um, he's down at the beach having the best time of his life. And I wind up, and this other dog comes up with a black spaniel and it's wanted to play around and Cooper's not interested in playing with it. And so I'm going, nice dog. And then I wind up to, to lift this stick and I just feel this kind of clunk on the back swing. And I look round and there's Lily lying dead on the beach behind me. And Lily's owners had passed us up the road, uh, up the beach a bit before. And they turn round and they see Lily lying dead beside me and and they double back and they say, what's happened? <laughs> now, I know what's happened. I, you know, I've put two and two together. And as I'm kneeling down beside Lily, I'm caught with these, this decision. Do I tell them the truth about how it was an unfortunate accident and I've just clubbed their dog to death inadvertently, or do I lie and say, I've got no idea. <laughs> and in that moment of trying to make that decision in my head, 
Lily gasped beside us. And I'm hoping that this isn't just a death throw, the last spasm of Lily on the, on the beach beside me. And as I'm watching her, Lily kind of lifts her head and pops up and toddles off down the beach again. And thank God she was just knocked unconscious and they hadn't killed her. I can just imagine that. The relief. I, had no, I don't know what the, I said to the owners or, or what they said to me after that. I was just absolutely a flood of whatever they are, endorphins of relief or whatever, overwhelmed me. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great story. But before we go into questions, I, I'm, you've actually done the reading of How to Walk a Dog. You, you've done yeah, did, yeah, the, the audio. Reading, for, for Radio for, New Zealand. Zealand. Yeah, that How was, was that? Because that's it's a completely fun. different skill. Skill yeah, I don't know whether I man- mastered it, but it was fun. Um, it was it was great. So Radio New Zealand um, gets books um, and gets people to uh, you know abridge them, which means you chop it down, but you read it in ten chapters. I mean, I'll be completely honest that it may not have been the quality of the book. I like to think it was that got me picked, but it's also the producer of Catherine Ryan's program. On, you know, nine to noon in the morning. Comes to the dog park. Um, <laughs> she didn't le- need she to tell lives us at that. the bottom we of the dog park. It's Claire Zerani, and uh, she, who has who used to have one of the most badly behaved dogs in Wellington. Fantastic little bugger um, um, who was always running away. And there's a well, I like to think it's a, one of the funniest dog stories that I, that I've come across. A brilliant story about. Uh, when her dog runs into a neighbour's, uh, into a stranger's house through the cat flap while he's chasing the, that person's oh. cat and, and trying, and, and the process they went to try and get their dog out oh, of the stranger's house. Uh, yeah, good yarn. But anyway, so that's how that came about. But it was fun. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure, but we've got a few minutes left for questions. So I can't see terribly well out here, but has anybody got a question? Someone over there. Oh, yes. John. Your book is beautifully illustrated by Sharon. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I wonder how much direction or what kind of reading you gave to Sharon. Yeah, I don't know if people know Sharon. She's appearing tomorrow at a session. Um, She's a cartoonist for for Stuff, for um, who cartoons appear in the Dominion Post and the Sunday Star Times. Just the most incredibly talented um, cartoonist, but someone who loves dogs and cats. She also does, um, if you read the Dominion Post, she um, draws next to the crossword, there's Munro, the little cat. Um, so that's so Sharon's got a couple of cats and a dog. And the dog, you know, Cooper, somehow doesn't even get on the cover. This is pretty much Sharon's dog on the cover. <laughs> Sore point, says Cooper. Uh, but the cartoons are brilliant. John, she had no brief... Um, Sharon's not one, I don't think, to be given briefs. Uh, she, and, and I didn't want to give her a brief. I was just thrilled that she, she agreed, agreed to, to illustrate it. So did she read the script? No. So, no so these, oh, oh, I might have sent her some chapters, but I don't think she read them. Um, no. Oh, so, they, so they're not related to the chapters? So, no, no, that's just, wrong. They are. No, some of them are. She must have read some of, some of the chapters. But, I mean, Sharon uh, is just a genius and the cartoons uh, yeah. they blew me away and um, 
yeah, they add to the book immensely, I think. I think the lovely thing about the cartoons is it's generic rather than having photos of dogs. You know, yep. like it could be any dog because it's a cartoon. When dog. we when we were thinking of how to how to present the book, um, I didn't want photos. I mean, sure, you can have lots of lovely photos of your dog, but we just thought that somehow cartoons mm. or, or illustrations would be better. Mm. And what Sharon came up with are just, yeah, they're just brilliant. Yeah. She, Sharon sees the world in a, in a wonderful and, and different way to what I most people do. And she's and So she's a actually got a session here so tomorrow. So if any of you have available? a chance to go and see Sharon tomorrow. Um, yeah. There are some seats available yep, for that yep, tomorrow. With, uh, with That's Sharon. tomorrow morning. Um, yeah, she's just a genius. So... Are there any other questions? Yes. Thanks, Mike. Um, what do you think Cooper might have taught you about life, or at least living life with Cooper? I think the same thing that probably every dog teaches people. Just pure joy for every day. Every day, get up, stretch, and wag your tail and think, yay, what's happening today? And just to, to joy in the simplest things, the simplest things that they do every day, you know, it doesn't matter if they go for the same walk around the same block every day, they'll still find joy in that. And just the, just the, the simplicity of life for a dog is reasonably structured, most of our dogs, it's reasonably ordered, but there's the same amount of joy every day. And I... I, Susie, I still every day get reminded of that by watching dogs and uh, just, you know, um, they go, oh, there's this one, oh, bugger, I should have bought this quote. There's this fabulous quote. Um, look it up online to get the real vision. It's by Charles Schultz, the guy that did um, Peanuts cartoon um, strip. Uh, it's something like, he tried his best every day um, to be as good as he could, but often he failed, for after all, he wasn't a dog. And I've got that up on my wall. It's, it's my favourite dog quote, and I've got a few. Uh, and I, I just kind of think, yeah. There was a great... Uh, oh, quite a few years ago, there was a, um, a, an ad campaign, again, if you go home and YouTube it, an ad campaign for a British company... Uh, O2 Oxygen or something like that and the name of the campaign was Be More Dog and, 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 and it was about a cat and looking at the dog and the cat thinking hey dogs have much better fun and, and, <laughs> and I just think that's a great phrase Be More, more dog. dog I mean dogs don't ask for much they their loyalty is never ending um, yeah I'd like to be a bit more dog any other questions yes Dogs and vocabulary. You know, how many words do you think Cooper knows? And <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, I think, I think he, I think we like to think he knows more words than he does. Um, I, because often, you know, you can say a word and a dog will respond. You think, oh, smart dog, but he's responding to your emotion, your reaction, your, the way you've phrased it, kind of. Um, how many words Cooper know? He does, I'm pretty sure he, he'll know, well, he knows the basics of sit, stay, you know, come, wait, heal. 
whether he does them is an entirely different matter, but he knows them. He knows what he's meant to do. He knows, uh, he does know walk, I think. And he knows, I'm positive he knows Hobbes' name. And, uh, well, that's just a sign of, um, so, so this is a, a beach just along from us in Island Bay. Um, that's at one end of the park, and in a, in, a, in a few minutes you'll see what was at the other end of the park. Um, so I don't, I don't know how many words he knows. He knows Cooper. God, I hope he knows Cooper. Um, but I don't think he knows Mike and my partner's name, Nikki. I'm not sure. Uh, but... Yeah, I could never say walk to my dog. I had to spell it out. Yeah. When he was around, because he'd go crazy. Yeah, I'm yeah. the same. W-A-L-K. Yeah. Shall we do yeah, one yeah, of those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm not saying that Cooper's the smartest dog in the world. He's sometimes I think he's really clever, and then other times I think, you know, really, mate, what's going on? So we've got the front. We've got so pretend that Tess and I are sitting in our lounge, and there's a, a sliding door that goes into a front room, which is kind of like a sunroom. And then on the right-hand side, there's another door that opens back into the, well, into a bedroom. But, so Cooper will go out one door. One door's open, one door's closed. He will go out through there into the front room, come along to the sliding doors, which are glass, and stare back through at us going, I don't know how to get back in. Well, turn around and walk back while you came. And he's never got this. So at times like that, I think, oh, no. (laughs) Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. It's just been an absolute pleasure. Um, And lovely to have some lighthearted. This is a great book. There is copies for it for sale out there, and Mike will be available to sign them for you. So thanks, Mike. Thanks for coming along. Yeah, thank you. That was Mike White speaking to Tessa Nicholson at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about the event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell a friend. Thanks for listening.